Robbie Knox here, landlord of the Moon Underwater, and I have a very exciting announcement to share with you. Have you ever found yourself listening along to the podcast thinking, hmm, I wish I could experience this with my own eyes in the real world? Well, you're in luck, because very soon the Moon Underwater will be returning to the other realm for a special live show. As it's such a special occasion, we thought we'd invite an equally special guest along. Joining us on the night to create their dream pub is the Edinburgh Comedy Award-winning comedian Ahir Shah. It's taking place on Sunday the 7th of April at Moth Club in London. Tickets are on general sale now. Search Moon Under Pod on socials, head to our page and click the link in the bio to get your tickets. We look forward to seeing you there. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. To those who missed the eyeshadow twilight... To those who watched fog gather in the valley below. To those who caught the magnolia scent from beyond the wall. Come now to twilight fog and blossom in the moon underwater. Vespers, the matins, and all in between. It's the moon underwater here. I'm John Robbins, your, uh, I'm gonna say mystical landlord of a mystical pub. And in this mystical pub, this pub of the mind, this pub of the soul, the pub that knows desires reach, we invite guests to select their perfect pub lineup. And with me to assist, and I, he's contorted himself into all manner of different shapes uh, in order to find a memory 
that was left hovering beneath one of the pews. Uh, I think he's just about got it now. It's the lovely Robin Allender. Hello, Robin. Hello, John. Yes, um, I was I was very flat, like uh, flat Stanley. I don't know if you ever. You were. Yeah, I, I got th- got through the floorboards, found found the memory, uh, which was uh, coloured like a, a sort of one, one of those marbles. Yes. It might have been a marble. It could have been a marble, actually. Oh, was it a marble? Yeah, it might have been a marble. But then I kind of unflattened myself, became my usual sphere, and, um, you know, just back to business, really. Yeah, and how are you finding the moon underwater tonight? How did it reveal itself to you in the, I'm going to say, half dusk? <laughs> well, the half dusk, yeah, I sort of was walking down the street. I, tur- I, I turned around a corner... And kept sort of kept turning round the corner. I sort of didn't stop turning round the corner, and the pub was sort of perpetually in the distance there. Oh, great! I love it when it's perpetually in the distance there. Yeah, I was sort of dwelling on the threshold. I was I was dwelling on the threshold. Oh, mate, dweller on the threshold. Dweller on the threshold. Uh, what I did I. Did I? Do my ears deceive me? Is that the the sound of cannoned hand? It's the sound of cannon hand, but it's only one of my fellow Heineken zeros. <laughs> yes, and you brought that in with you to the moon underwater because, uh, uh, well, I don't know why you did because we've got it here on draft. I know. I just like to walk around with a big bag of cans. Yeah, it is a nice feeling, especially when, when you're on the bus. You walk down the road with a big bag of cans. That's a moray. <laughs> that is a moray indeed. <laughs> yeah. And do you like some of the new we've got? I don't know where they came from. They just sort of became themselves. Some of the new mirrors that we've got behind the bar. Yeah, they're lovely. With various sort of. Is it gilt? If it's not. What's it called if it's not gold? Is it just not gilt, is it? Guild, guild, gilding, like gold paint style. Yeah, but it's not gold. It's it's sort of regular colours from the spectra. Okay, and then very nice, the sort of stained glass mirrors, which I've never seen before. Yeah, and spelling out some of the uh, sort of well patrons' names uh, of the Moon Underwater, but also some old some old company names. There's uh... <laughs> this company's house. No. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it's... Company, company's mirror. Maybe this is company's house's mirror. Um, but there's Wainwright Thingtons over there. What, Wainwright Thingtons? Wainwright Thingtons. Oh, nice. I think they used to make uh, soles for shoes. Yeah. And uh, there's... Um... <laughs> Pop... Pop. <laughs> there's um, Portescue's Tonic Wine... Oh, yes. Victorian-era tonic. Wine. Wine. Tonic wine, yeah. Portescue's tonic wine. Yeah. And Savile Row brackets not the street that sells suits. Must be just another Savile Row. Another Savile Row, okay. Uh, Maybe it's specialised in sausage rolls or pastry or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's it. Those are the three. (laughs) Those are the three companies. Bit odd. It is a bit very strange, but you can't second guess um, the moon underwater. How are you, Robin? We should probably probably give some kind of dry Jan update. Oh, dry Jan. Well, I'm you know I'm I'm winning and losing at the same time. There there have been a couple of um, I've taken a couple of days break from dry Jan, mm. but I'm still I still think that I'm doing dry Jan. Yeah, but I'm just I've really cut down. I'm not really drinking in the week. 
And I just want to continue that throughout the year. So kind of make the whole year into a dry jam. Yeah, that's perfect. And that's what everyone should be doing, really. And if dry jam is the springboard that leads you to a little bit of moderation, then that's exactly, that's the point. That's the whole point in it. I'm afraid my dry January collapsed in a heap of cans, but I'm uh, sans cans tonight. Mm. So, yeah, I think similarly to you, just want to up up the numbers, not put too much pressure on myself. Uh, but I went to a pub last night called, I think, Harrison's. Okay. And that was very nice. Uh, lovely selection of various keg beers and a superb pint of Landlord. Mm. Though they did have that, I mean, you know, it's not their fault because it was a Sunday, but walked in and it was about a third full, but every table was reserved. Ah, uh, yeah. Because uh, everyone obviously wants to get in there. Sunday roast. Yeah. Uh, we met on Friday and, and went to a couple of pubs in Stockwell, which was nice. Didn't really know that area. Um, really liked The Surprise. That was a great pub. Oh, yes. The Surprise was a lovely pub. And the Priory Arms was lovely. And then I went on to a... Get, you went home because we couldn't find anywhere to have a, a, a curry. <laughs> yeah. So you went home. And I went to see a, a gig, uh, my, my good friend Ed Dowie. And he played at the Cavendish Arms, and that place was is amazing. It's like you stepped into like the Black Lodge from Twin Peaks or something. Oh, so is it is it sort of a pub with a venue room in the back? Yeah, but the pub itself is like it's kind of all sofas and kind of exotic materials mm. draped down. Really nice beer, and then the back room is like a really good gig venue with kind of black and white checkered floor, red curtains. Um, it's all a bit of a blur, to be honest, but it was a great gig. And really, yeah, what a great pub. Would recommend. The surprise was really nice because it was, I think it's a Young's pub, but it had a real genuine set of locals in there. And it felt, and they were really nice. And one of them chatted to us. Just felt like so rare that you sort of stumble in on a group of sort of eight people all in a huddle. And there are caricatures of them. In the, in the pub as well. It was really nice. But in, in the Priory Arms, I went there. They they had the camera good beer guide. I think it was the 2021. And both those pubs are in it. And I, I had a little flick through Oxford as well, which, as you do. And Bristol, of course. It was a lovely little, little voyage down the, the stream of memory. Um, but Robin, low lies the mist this evening. Yes, we. Mist around our anculets. Um, <laughs> I heard you sighing away. Yeah, I sighed. You side for the mist mail. If anyone does want to get in touch with us here at the Moon Underwater, uh, send your mist to john at moonunderpod.com. Uh, but Robin, what, what mist has settled for us this eve? Thanks, John. Had a very nice mist in from Joe. And he refers to the fact we've mentioned the Beach Boys a couple of times recently. Hi, chat. I thought that said chaos again. Hi, chaos. Your chat about the double nomination of Pet Sounds and general excellence of the Beach Boys got me thinking about an unusual track of theirs I used to listen to quite a bit a fair few years ago called Their Hearts Were Full of Spring. There are some live versions on YouTube, but this recording is the best quality I can find of this rare gem. As an ex-acapella singer myself, I loved and appreciated revisiting the musicality of this group and their unique voices and those lyrics, struth. Mine eyes doth weep ever so. All the best and keep up the good chat. Now that is, it's a great email, a great mist to receive, because that, I think we are both extremely fond of that song. Are we not? The hearts were full of spring. I don't think I've heard it. Really? Oh, it was like, um, 
Well, when I was at uni, our friend Mike gave me a tape. So this is kind of slightly kind of pre-internet. And it was all the smile sessions and smiley smile and all this. And it was just a blank cassette. So no song titles. I didn't know what anything was. And all the songs blurred together. So I used to listen to it so much in my first year at uni. And on that was this song, The Hearts Were Full of Spring, which was a cover, actually, the Beach Boys did. But it's it's so beautiful. It's incredible what they can do with just their voices. And there's something quite magic on the, about the fact it was just on this cassette and I had no idea like, kind of what the song was and stuff, you know. But yeah, no, that song's a very, very important song to me. So thanks for getting in touch about that, Joe. Lovely. Lovely. Um, another mist here, which is from Mike. And now this is a good mist. Okay, because we, we've got, we, we, will, we will have things to say about this. Don't you worry. Dear Landlord John and Robin, in all your wistful musings on the pubs of Oxford, I have never heard you mention the Gardener's Arms. I can't imagine that it has evaded your notice. After all, it's a pub and it's in Oxford. These facts alone must surely mean you are at the very least aware of its existence. Having spent some happy hours there myself, I would love to hear your thoughts and feelings on this establishment should the nature and depth of your acquaintance with it allow. It may also be of interest to John that the food they serve is not only the suitably simple fare that befits a pub environment, but is, but is also fully vegetarian and often vegan. As a long-term veggie myself, this, this gives the Gardener's Arms several extra desire points. Many happy Vespers to you both. Mike, P.S., they also play some excellent music. Now, right, first point here, Mike. Yes, I know where this is going. Is there are two Gardener's Arms in very close proximity. Yes. But because of what you say about the menu, I'm guessing you mean the Plantation Road one, not the North Parade one. Not the North Parade one. But yes, I like them both. But the Plantation Road one is pretty darn magical, magique. Well, they're both magic in their own way. I have mixed memories of the the one on North Parade because they used to have these sort of mad heaters on that were way, way too hot. It was. I liked that one because it was like stepping back in time. I really liked it. But yes, heaters. Yeah, the heaters were too hot, but they did have big pint glasses of monkey nuts, didn't they? That's the bookbinders of the monkey nuts, no. isn't it? No. Bookbinders yeah. has big barrels of monkey nuts, but okay. the gardener's okay. arms served them in pints. Oh, right. Nice, nice. No, wait, 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 wait. You're thinking of the Rosen Crown, which serves pistachios in pint glasses. <laughs> no, I'm thinking of the gardener's arms. <laughs> this has become the most niche <laughs> thing ever, talking about what nuts Hang on, hang to. on, hang on. I think Rosen Crown, definitely pistachio. Is the Rosen Crown on the right and the gardener's arms on the left? Well, which way are you facing? North. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that. Like, Hang on, let me look it up in my mind. Rosen Crown is one of the lovely flower baskets. Gardener's arms is the one that's kind of green. I associate it with being green. Oh, Okay, I've got I've got confused in my own mind. Yeah, yeah. The heaters and the pints of monkey nuts is pistachios. Is the rose and crown excellent pub? Yes. Gardener's Arms is the one where you 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 sort of you raised a fuss because um, you had a lime cordial that cost two pounds or something. Uh, I did not raise a fuss. Sam raised a fuss. Okay. Yeah. Uh, our friend Sam. So we're both. Memory and desire have mixed. I always like the Gardener's Arms because it said, like, it was, you know, they have that little licensee information. 
Yeah. It was licensed to DJ Rhymes. Oh, yes, it was. Yeah, DJ Rhymes, uh, who was sort of obviously in his 70s, but sounded like he worked in Ibiza. <laughs> and that was where, do you remember our friend Merrin? We, we went to eat there. <laughs> And she said, on the menu is egg mayonnaise. No, it was bacon and egg mayonnaise sandwich. Bacon and egg mayonnaise sandwich, right. And she said, is that egg mayonnaise or is it egg mayonnaise? No, she she said, okay. <laughs> is that bacon and egg mayonnaise or bacon and egg mayonnaise? And yeah. the person, the waitress thought she'd gone completely insane. Because all mayonnaise is made of egg. Oh no, because so is it bacon, egg, comma, mayonnaise or is it bacon and egg mayonnaise yeah she wanted to know whether the bacon and the egg had been mixed up with the mayo or whether it was rashes of bacon with egg mayonnaise i just often find myself saying that to myself is that egg mayonnaise or egg mayonnaise yeah yeah no it was the relationship with the bacon that was a question but mike in answer to your in answer to your wonderful mist we love the gardener's arms on plantation road because they used to sell pint and a half glasses of ale. They did sell pint and a half glasses of ale. And I I just remember falling in love with pubs when, when I went to that pub. Yeah. Uh, at uni. Because I think I went out with you, it was like a Saturday afternoon, we were with our friend Mike, and it was that glorious time around, like, you know, when the football results come in, they had it on the telly, and it's just, they, they were playing the results, had scampi fries. Remember, I can... I'm, I'm, can almost touch it. <laughs> and the best thing about the pint and a half glasses, which sound much better than they are in terms of the reality, because you think it's the best thing ever invented. Yeah. And then the sort of the last few mouthfuls are a bit sort of warm and, and flat. However, mm. every time you're served one, you get to say, it comes in pints, just like in Lord of the Rings, because you look like a hobbit, hobbit. when you're holding them. But ironically, it's not a pint. So. No, it's not. It's It comes in one and a half pints. Uh, so thank you very much for those wonderful mists that led Robin and I into a you know, pretty rigorous self-evaluation there. Yeah. There was a lot of kind of correcting of kind of misinformation there, often to do with food stuffs. It felt a bit like time present and time past were both present in time future or something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's time to sweep aside all thought of the Gardener's Arms, be it North Parade or Plantation Road, and prepare the moon underwater for this week's guest. Robin, look at how the look at. Have you seen the light outside? Yeah, it's very, very dark light. Yes, it's sort of like a reverse sunset in. Well, I want to say black and white. There's hints of blue in there, but it just looks absolutely stunning. Really beautiful. A rainbow of shadows. A rainbow of shadows. That's a very good way of putting it. And I think what that rainbow of shadows is trying to tell us that one of TV's most colourful food experts one of tv's most watchable bon viveurs is on his way to bring a bit of brightness to the moon underwater and here he is reflected numerous times in the glass outside opening the door it's oliver payton hello oliver hello 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 how are you 
Welcome to the moon underwater. It pull up a pew. What's your favourite type of pub chair to sit in? Oh, I love a booth. Oh well, the booth is yours. It will arrange itself towards us. I have to start by saying, if you took all of my TV viewing over the past ten years, you would probably feature highest in terms of the time I've spent watching any one individual person. That is very sad. <laughs> but I'm such I'm such a huge fan of Great British Menu from the from series 1. It seemed to solve every problem that other cookery programs, especially competitive ones had in that the food was hot, the food was of a very very high standard and they were all sort of judged to the same standard and you got the access to the the chefs in the kitchen you got the set separation of the judges so i'm i mean there's no question attached to this i just want to say it's a huge pleasure to talk to you uh, because you've played such a big part in my tv watching over the years thank you thank you i did have one slightly geeky question about it though that's all right now i've never been to a michelin starred restaurant I've had nice meals, but I don't think I've ever been to what I would class as fine dining. You're a pub guy. I'm a pub guy. I like, I I know what I like. I like, I like Chinese. I like Indian food and I do like to eat in nice places, but I've never, you know, been to a proper like tasting menu or anything like that. You need, you need to go to A Wong. Oh, I'm obsessed with going to A Wong. Is it amazing? Yeah, it's amazing. He's great. But my, my question is when you get a dish on GBM and you sort of all say oh this hasn't worked and and you all have your own way of expressing sort of disappointment you will sort of move away from your dish (laughs) it's that way that you know you don't like it because it's almost like you want you want sort of take it away because it's upset you so the problem is is that my mum used to say if you haven't got anything nice to say don't say anything at all so yeah. when when I'm moving away, I'm trying to find the politest way not to offend my mother, God rest her soul, <laughs> because because sometimes you just think, how did this person get on here? Because, you know, they were just, they were in the wrong universe. I think there's also some good body language with um, the spectacles of Matthew Fort and when Andy Oliver was a judge. Depending on where the spectacles were on the head, it often kind of gave you a signal as to how much they'd enjoyed it. Sometimes both specs were on the head. Sometimes there were both specs were on the nose. You know. I think I, you know what's interesting about GBM was when it started. It was we all just thought it was going to be one series, and it was people like uh, Anthony Warrell Thompson and. Uh, known uh, TV chefs of the time. Uh, And we didn't really think it was going to go beyond one series. And certainly, Prue and Matthew and I, we were in a basement in Fleet Street with no... It was the old express building, I think, and there was no power to it. So the choice was either to have cameras or to have heating. And it was winter. And so when the cameras would go off, we would all just run for our coats because it was so cold because it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a proper studio. And, you know, and it's really, you know, it's quite genuinely, it's quite interesting to see how the show has evolved because at the time there really wasn't a massive British food culture, mainly because, and this is my belief, is it was, you know, food was very London centric 
and uh, are major conurbation centric. And then uh, what happened was, you know, GVM came along. We, we made the we made the rules stricter and stricter. Farmers who don't get out very much started watching the show. They could see people producing food, uh, p- producing things, and and there was a demand for these ingredients. So they started getting interested in pr- producing ingredients. People started then. Chefs thought, mm, well, actually, maybe I could do something outside London, because any great restaurant in the world that I've ever been to uh, only uses its local uh, producers. And, and there wasn't, we just didn't have that whole sort of dynamic going on. And so now, I mean, you know, there's so many great restaurants. The best restaurants are mostly outside London, mainly because the good chefs have access to produce. And so that whole thing happened. And it's really, if you think about it, really, it's only 15, 16 years from the time of, say, Anthony Warrell Thompson to now. And you look at that food evolution. I mean, it, it's it's really quite incredible. I don't think any country in the world, you know, could have done what's happened. So, you know, there's, there's so much. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Sometimes you just get blown away. I mean, when you have a great dish, you just, you know, a great dish when you have one, you know, because I'll stop waffling on about Great British Menu in a minute. But, you know, we can tell where chefs have worked because there'll be little traits in the dishes. So we know that the chef will have worked in some restaurant beforehand or where where he'd come through. But when you have a dish that's produced by a chef where you can't see where the chef has come from, that's when the food's really interesting. Because you think, oh, that's that that's new. So that's when that's where I think the show gets very exciting. Well I wanted to ask you about uh, Michael O'Hare's dish, Emancipation, because yeah. honestly, I mean this again, you're gonna think I'm such a saddo. When that dish came out, your response to it, I actually had tears in my eyes. <laughs> I can't because it, my <laughs> it was the, the black china hand coming off the canvas. I know the dish. I can't remember my response to it, though. <laughs> but <laughs> you, I mean, it was tens across the board. Was that one of the ones where you were just like, oh, my God, this is next level stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, because Michael is, you know, he's an individual. He is like, uh, he is a mixture of Ozzy Osbourne, Johnny Rotten and Johnny Cash. <laughs> you know, he's got a, he's <laughs> he's got a lot of genres going on there. You know, <laughs> they uh, yeah. No, no. Michael Michael's amazing because you know I think part of the problem. Michael's an interesting point is it's actually hard to do anything very different because people don't really want different. Different doesn't sell. What sells is you know what sells is safety. You know, so to be financially safe. You've got to have your sea bass dishes and you've got to have your whatever they are, you know, your steak and your blah. And it's, it's, there's people come in and they might go in to come into a menu and they go, ooh, sea urchin, but they don't order it. You know what I mean? It's like they just think, ooh, I'm in a restaurant that's got sea urchin. <laughs> you know, it's. Uh... <laughs> so when you have one of those dishes where you all think it doesn't work, my, my original geeky question was to, to the untrained palate like me, would I still be blown away by that dish or would I know that something had gone wrong? How bad are the bad ones? Because the chefs are very talented. Yeah. So the problem you have is it's multi-layered because what you have, if you have chefs that work for a company, uh, they will have been prepped. They'd have been given time to prepare their dishes a long time in advance and they would have practiced, practiced, practiced. If you're an individual chef who has closed his restaurant on a Sunday after Sunday service and on Monday morning comes along to the studio, it's quite a lot. It's, it's a much bigger challenge 
because most people who have a, just one restaurant are, you know, they're there, they're on the stoves, they're running the business, and they are, you know, they're on the front line. So they don't have a lot of time to practice. So, you know, it's a bit like being chucked in the Coliseum in a way. So unless they've had that opportunity to prepare, um, I mean, when chefs come back a second or third time, they have more knowledge of what they need to do. So that's why they tend to do better on a second or third round if they're, if they're, if they're individual chefs. So a lot of the time that they blow a dish in answer to your original question <laughs> is because they just weren't ready, you know. And so they'll overcook something or they'll miss an ingredient or they'll be too nervous because, you know, there's a lot of cameras in the kitchen. You know, you come in and there are seven or eight cameras staring at you and you're thinking, WTF. The link to the brief is always the hardest one. Yeah, well, that's the thing I'm always screaming at the telly is like, there's no link to the brief. You know, that that's the thing that surely is the thing you want to hammer home. But sometimes it's not kind of clear when people are doing it. When a chef comes along and he just, you know, uses one of his restaurant, his or her restaurant dishes, and yeah. they just put it on a plate and they put a they put a red nose on it, or they put a they put a, <laughs> a they, they put it on a dodgy LP they bought in the local record store. You know what I mean? It's like you just think, I mean, all right. But I think sometimes the brief is quite hard. You know, you have, trying to make it really creative is is quite hard. But you know. I mean, to me, you know, great food is simple food. So when when chefs have tons of ingredients on a plate, it makes it 10 times harder for it to work as a dish. The most successful dishes are generally the ones with the least amount of ingredients. And in order to get to the least amount of ingredients, it takes an awful lot of practice, if you know what I mean. I was quite impressed with that guy a while ago who did the uh, he did one. I think it was about children's literature, and he um, made a dish based around Lord of the Flies, which is I'm not sure you want that at a banquet. Yeah. You know, a, a dish about man's inhumanity to man. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, but all all of that. I mean, when you when you look at stuff like literature, you can really do a lot with, can't you? You know what I mean? So it's uh, and and also some of the guest judges on that were just you know sometimes the judges when they come on, you think, oh my god. I mean, Andrew Ridgely. Oh my God, Andrew Ridgely! I mean, I mean, he blew us away with the amount of knowledge he had about food. I mean, he was unbelievable about food. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, he he has a sort That's of so uh, funny. yeah, and he's got his own little pin for his tie for you know for that you know one of those things for lunch. I mean, he's 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 like a proper food, you know. And every restaurant you'd ever been to, he's, you know. We started having little sort of, oh, well, have you been to Blah in Lima? <laughs> and he's going, yeah, but I didn't really like that. I liked the Blah. And I'm going, fuck, I didn't go to that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so to move on from the from the restaurant to the bar, before you were sort of came to prominence on Great Bish Menu, you were a very successful restaurateur. And I wondered what part does alcohol play in the planning of a new restaurant and in its successful execution, because it struck me thinking about speaking to you that the wine list or the drinks list is actually the first thing you you see in a restaurant. It's the first thing you peruse. So I, I wonder if you could just sort of talk about the role that alcohol or drinks in general play. My backstory is I used to uh, import alcohol. So I used to import absolute vodka and I used to import Sephora beer and things like that back in the 80s. So my, uh, you know, I used to have a microbrewery called Mash. I'd won in Manchester, I'd won in London. You know, I, start, I started brewing beer because 
you know, you, you go into a pub and all you can see is foreign beers brewed under license in the UK. And they were, I mean, to me, you were just buying the badge because, I mean, and mostly I'd spend most of my time in the loo because they were so low alcohol by volume and they were like, <laughs> they were just rubbish. So what I tried to do is to set up a bar where you could have cocktails, microbrewed beers, everything all in one place with the wine list, which is, again, if you wanted a good beer, you, you know, you had to go to a camera pub at the time or and then pubs didn't serve cocktails or they didn't have good wine. So, again, the, the culture of, of going out has changed dramatically. I mean, I had a restaurant in St. James's Park and I, when I started it, Prue had one before me and they wouldn't let Prue sell alcohol to take away. I was the first restaurant in a royal park where you could buy alcohol to take away so it means you come into the restaurant you buy alcohol you go and sit in the park i mean it sounds a bit weird now but but you know i mean when i opened the atlantic bar and grill it was the first restaurant in london first venue in london where you didn't have to, we had a 3 a.m license but it was the first venue where you didn't have to pay in after 11 o'clock because previously, if you wanted a drink after 11 o'clock, you had to pay in. So I've always sort of tried to pride myself on um, pushing the boundaries about how people feel about booze. And I mean, to me, when I was in my first restaurant, when we were creating a wine list, I mean, it was super important to me that people really were able to understand what wine was. I mean, because what you don't want to do is have some snotty sommelier looking, you know, looking down at you like as if you didn't know what you were doing. So, and also trying to make things, you know, the psychology in a wine list is large. You know what I mean? It takes it takes a lot to make a great wine list. I mean, you go into many of these sort of posh restaurants, in my opinion, you look at the wine list and you think, I'm not paying that, you know, because it's just, they have so many wines. A lot of them are the wrong vintages or they're just, you can't get anything under 100 quid a bottle. It's going to taste decent. Some of them don't even start at 75 quid. So I think for many restaurateurs, the psychology of the wine list now is, 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 is really important. So, and also I think the mark of a good venue, I don't think necessarily restaurant, I, I hate to keep saying the word restaurant. Uh, I mean, if I go to a pub, then I, 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 look, at the, I look at the wine list first because I have a sort of expectation that any pub I would go to, I would expect the beer to be decent because I wouldn't be going there otherwise, if you know. Well, I, I went to, um, uh, there's a Hackersan in London. And uh, the first time I went, I re- really enjoyed it. The next time I went, it was like I was in a nightclub. It was very strange. It was sort of all sort of UV light. and But anyway, the wine list I found, it was so much stuff. And part of you is going, oh, my God, look at all this amazing stuff. But then the other part of you goes, I have no idea where, what my inn is here. I mean, there's probably 80 wines. So is do you think it's important to have, like, a load of great wines or a sort of a slightly smaller selection that perhaps people feel they could have explained to them by a sommelier or a waiter? I mean, Hakkasan caters to a particular market, if you know what I mean. It's not somewhere where, you know, there's one in Vegas, they're in Ibiza, you know, you're, it's a bit like buying a sort of a fancy handbag, if you know what I mean, because people are, they're trying to make it into a sort of global brand. I mean, it's, it's a very, very expensive setup. I mean, personally, I like smaller lists. Again, it's a bit like food. The smaller the list, the more work you have to do to make it good. And anything where you're over 80 to 100 wines, 
you are you're you're in the the wine management business not in the wine list business i think 60 60 wines 50 to 60 wines will cover most regions in the world and most decent price points i would say but i do love i do love perusing a wine list it tells you a lot about a restaurant it's one of the great indicators of how it's run and also here's here's my little really <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely because it takes constant love and attention it's like having a baby because vintages change, stuff changes all the time. And if you've got nice wine, that wine runs out. And then you have to either change vintage or get something similar. You know, yeah, it's a moving feast all the time, if you know what I mean. The key to going to uh, and ordering wine, though, is you. there is always on any wine list. You're getting some of my secrets out of me now. <laughs> There's always a hidden gem that the sommelier or the manager has put on the list. There's always a gem. The one that they want. The, the one that they pick because they really like it. It's not too expensive. It's somewhere in the middle and it's always there. It's the little hidden, it's the hidden thing. So you always have to ask for that. Oh, that's a great tip. Thank you so much. Well, moving on to your dream pub, what are you seeing before you? Because you must be someone who has seen so many interiors of bars and pubs and restaurants but when you walk into your ideal pub, what, you walk through that door, what sort of setup is it? What sort of vibe? So as an Irish person, one of the things that upsets me greatly about London is how cliquey it is. So again, I'm just going to refer back to the Atlantic because I used to go to the Groucho Club. And one of the reasons I set up the Atlantic was I used to go to the Groucho Club every night, have an extremely good time. But my circle of friends was very narrow because it was the same people all the time. And when I set up the Atlantic, I wanted to make sure that it was lots of different people all the time. Any pub or any place I want to go into, I don't want to see loads of people with beards or loads of workers. I just want to see lots of different people. A pub is about community. And, you know, I think pubs should have lots of different people in them. They shouldn't be intimidating to anybody. You know, everybody should be able to come. London is the most amazing city in the world. I want to see lots of amazing people. So... See what sort of all humanity is here kind of vibe. 100%. Well, that's such a great ethos to take into creating a dream pub that it's, uh, it's clientele are as varied as the, the drinks it provides. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thousands of people listen to The Moon Underwater every week and we can help deliver your brand message to targeted audiences. So if you want to be part of The Moon Underwater and connect with engaged audio listeners, get in touch. Just email sales at audioalways.com and find out more about how podcast advertising and sponsorship could work for you. That's sales at audioalways.com. <laughs> Hello, I'm Dave Berry, and I am fascinated by my next-door neighbour. His name is Neil Srinivasan, and he's a leading cardiologist. 
Since I moved to this particular part of London, Neil and I have started to become friends. Our polite greetings over the fence turned into garden barbecues and drinks down the local pub. But with unfettered access to someone with a job that is so far removed from my own, I'm desperate to find out more about his industry, one that is quite literally a matter of life and death. In Doctor Next Door, I'll be doing my utmost to learn all about Neil as a medical professional, but also Neil as a person. Because, believe it or not, even doctors have lives outside of the operating theatre. But this podcast isn't just here to feed my own curiosities. I want you to be involved in these conversations too. I can't wait to get into this, so make sure you subscribe or follow Doctor Next Door from wherever you usually get your podcasts. So, to start off in this pub of of all comers, what would be your first two draft selections? Draft beer. Well, it could be anything that's available on draft. I mean, I'm guessing you're not going to choose an Echo Falls Zinfandel on draft. No. (laughs) Um, I have to say, Alistair Hook, who set up Meantime, set up my microbrewery for me. So, he he was my brewer in MASH. And I had... Is he known as Big Al? Is his nickname Big Al? I don't think so. He's he's I, he doesn't strike me as a big Al. He's 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 quite a robust chap, but 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 I don't. I think he probably he's he's, he's I don't think he's Big Al. No. Okay. I just my friend went on a brewery tour of the Meantime Brewery, and just said it was run by a guy called Big Al, who was very very charismatic and quite quite, quite a, a funny tour guide. No, I don't think Alistair would. Have, you know, I don't think Alistair would have been doing that. So, and I had I had one again. I had one again recently, and I I was in Riverside Studios actually, and it was really good. And I, I think you know that the pale ale has remained quite consistent. The other thing I'm a very big fan of is begins with the P Brown Label, Borough Made in Borough. They use those craft labels on the bottles. Oh, not kernel, not the kernel. kernel. Pint of kernel, yes. The draft kernel is actually very, very nice. Yeah, it's lovely. Mm. So is that their porter or their table beer, or what would, what would that be their pale it's ale? It's a pale ale. So the story, of, the story of pale ale to me, by the way, is it's lager, <laughs> you know, to, to me, because one of the things I'd done when we started in, in MASH was we, we started with a pale ale and there was no pale ale in the UK other than Sierra Nevada. And you could see quite a few, I used to go to all those sort of trade shows in America, you know, the Denver, Colorado and all those sort of, you know, weird places where you'd see lots of small microbreweries. And, and, and the, one of the reasons that we sort of brought pale ale here and with Alistair was I just wanted something, you know, you can get a lot of character out of pale ale because it's got less bubbles in it. And, uh, you know, I think making a good pale ale is is, a, is one of the keys of good brewing, if you know what I mean, because because it's uh, it can be a very beautiful thing. I also think there are so many crap canned beers around at the moment that it is just, I think they spent all the money on the artwork for the label. They, t- they took a tab of acid, got a graphic designer, and then said, "No, no, turn it up to 11. and then and then forgot forgot about brewing the beer, you know, because I find them all. I'm, I'm, you know, brewing beer is is takes is a great skill, you know, and uh, we don't have many brewers in the UK. We have lots of people who think they're brewers, but very few of them are really good. If you know what I mean, that's just my opinion. I do think a lot of those 
I know exactly the craft beers you mean. The, the problem with a lot of them is they seem to be, all be so strong. There is, it seems to be not much of a market for the just the, the lower percentage ones. You know, when you're looking at nine, ten percent beers, yeah, it's very uh, challenging. <laughs> yeah, it's really, ch- and you got to be careful because you got to really look as well because otherwise, you know. A, a, a couple of those nine percent beers, and you know you're you're you know you before you go out, and you think, whoops. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> so in your dream pub, we've got two pale ales. We've got Meantime and Colonel. Yeah. Nice, nice. Well, do I do sort of when you go to top end restaurants? I, I'm guessing they don't have a big beer selection. That's sort of because they're not going to make a huge amount of money of someone having sort of one or two bottles of beer with a meal. Is it sort of frowned upon to have? to ask for a pint in a in a top restaurant i think you know the reason uh, you know i always say i can smell a good restaurant before i've even had a menu but which i think you can uh but if you go into a place and they haven't got good choices whatever the choices are whether it's beer wine spirits whatever it is uh you can you can tell what people are interested in so I wouldn't like any restaurant that didn't have a good selection of beer because I just don't think that's right. You know, I remember once when I was young, I took the girl I was going out at the time, I'm not going to name the restaurant, to a very fancy restaurant for Saturday lunch with her father. Her father had invited us and she wanted ice cream to start and the restaurant wouldn't serve ice cream to start. And we just couldn't work out why they wouldn't do that because we're going, it's on the menu serve the ice cream <laughs> you know it's like they just wouldn't do it and and i just things like that you know when people just think people just want champagne or wine i mean it's ludicrous you know because restaurants and bars i mean i think much more so i think pubs are far more interesting than restaurants by the way because i think pubs are you know pubs have to reinvent themselves as a genre as a thing to be successful and i think we will see you know a massive change in pubs soon uh, because most of them can't stay the way they are. It's not a sustainable model uh, to keep doing what they're doing. Yeah, so I just wouldn't go to a place again. I wouldn't return to a place again where I didn't feel, for example, that they didn't have good beer. You know what I mean? I just Because I, I just, I think you expect it. What do you think it is that's unsustainable at the minute? And is it something that COVID has sort of sped up? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think um, I think COVID has you know, re-entrench people's views about the burbs, how they live their lives, how much time they're spending schlepping in and out on a train that is delayed because the snow is too heavy or the leaves are falling on the tracks or whatever the things are. And I think people's quality of life has become much more important. And the way one is, this certainly people are using their time. You notice in the suburbs and country pubs are far busier now. And if you speak to any of the people running them, they are a lot busier simply because people aren't moving around so much. And also, they've, you know, a sense of community has come out of that anyway, hasn't it, in terms of just people sticking together more. So I think it's a big opportunity for pubs at the moment. Well, I, I think also, so the last time pubs were this threatened was by the recession, the financial crisis. And I think that in a similar way to COVID, though an awful lot of great pubs will close, an awful lot of bad ones will too, because people are much more choosy about where they spend their time and their money. I think, look, it's been a shit show in, in terms of, can I say that? Yeah, <laughs> uh, you can say, yeah. <laughs> uh, because I think, you know, everybody was expecting the Christmas trade this year to 
save a lot of people's asses and because people have been through a horrific time and they're hoping the Christmas trade and those bookings and people's desire to go out because, you know, it was pretty hard to get a reservation anywhere in the run-up to Christmas because people were so excited to get back out there again. And then when it fell off the face of the earth, you know, most restaurants make 50% of their profit. When I'm saying restaurants, I mean pubs as well, by the way. I I don't know what I'd describe. Uh, Make 50% of their profit in December in the run-up to Christmas. And they use that profit to sustain themselves through the January and February period until spring comes again and people start going out again. And, you know, I feel really sorry for people who've got good businesses, basically, who, you know, but good people always come back, you know. So, and I, I always tell that to anybody who's worked for me before, or anybody I know, I say, you know, good people always rise again. Do you know what I mean? And I think um, good pubs, I mean, yeah, I think, most most of the people that I know in pubs will get through it because they're good at what they do. Some of them won't, and then some of them will come back again. But I feel really sad for, you know, I mean, it's just hospitality is just, be, I mean, you know, I mean, I know it's a bit boring to talk about it, but, you know, between COVID and, and then when they were able to trade, the staff couldn't come in because they got COVID. So I know lots of, you know, lots of people who just couldn't open their doors even to take the trade. a drink with my friend. It was really nice. The pub was called The Moon Underwater. So moving on to your next choice, Oliver, you've got two bottles or cans. Given your vast experience of of wine, I'm guessing we're going to see some wine here, but but we're going to get to see Oliver Payton's hidden gems. Mm. Uh, Northern, there's two. My favourite wines are from Northern Italy because I think Northern Italy and Rome, uh, mainly because I think Northern Italy is a much underappreciated region. uh, So you tend to get better value there. Uh, And plus there are higher altitude wines and I quite like slightly higher altitude wines. Um, and I like Rhone because Rhone is probably the region where you still got loads of nutcases producing wine. I mean, that's not completely true, but I, qu- I quite like the variety of wine that comes out of Rhone. You know, part of the problem with French wine is, in general, is their job is to, the Appalachian's job is to keep the wine the same uh, in their Appalachian so that it, people recognize it as their wine. Uh, whereas in Rhone, there's still still some people out there, you know, messing messing with the system, in my opinion. But also, I just like that type of wine. Uh, I'm not I'm not overly obsessed with older wine. So you know, I, lo- I you know, if, if someone offers me a great expensive Bordeaux, I'm I'm never going to turn it down. But it's not a go to wine for me. I you know, I like wines that you don't have to spend a lot of money on wine. I think it's sort of, I mean, if you if you go to a restaurant. And you know what you're doing, you know you're going to get a, a a pretty good bottle of wine under fifty quid. I would say if you know what you're doing, it's harder and harder to get a good bottle of wine under fifty quid, but it can be done. I'm always looking for the good value region because places where the wines haven't been ramped up yet, like the Italians are starting to ramp up their prices. They're starting to follow the French with more Appalachian and controlling the regions. But, you know, Eastern Europe's producing some great wines. So you can get 
really good white wines coming out of, of Eastern Europe. Germany's got great wines. Austria's got great wines. Gre Greeks have started to make good wine. So I would always be looking. I mean, here's another little tip. So on, on a wine list, the, the biggest margins are on house wines, obviously, wines by the glass, and known wines. So Chablis, Sancerre, Pinot Grigio, because the general view of the operator would be people who order those wines are not particularly interested in wine. Are we edging towards my personal favourite, our old friend, the Riesling? Oh, we love an old Riesling, don't we? Also, you know, the other funny thing about Rieslings, Rieslings still remain quite good value on wine lists because, because you know, there's not... The, I mean, they become more popular now, but there's still a lot of value to be had in a Riesling. But I do think people expect if they order it to someone to come out with a sort of a two-litre bottle of, of hock that your grand might have sort of uh, swigged from at Christmas. So do you, do you have an, a specific example of the northern Italian or Rhone wine that you would have in your dream pub, a particular grape or...? Well, Cornas red wine is... Uh, I love Cornas. It's just my type of wine. It's got a little little bit of edge to it, but you can there's a, there's a deep sense of quality to it. Uh, Condrio white wine, which you drink very young. I love Condrio, really good summer drinking wine. And then there's a wine called Terlaner in, in, in northern Italy, which I, I love Terlaner. And, and also the Veneto is making some nice wines. So all of that little, the corner north of Venice, all the way up, up there. Really lovely wines, Trentino, Alto Adige, Veneto. So is, is Cornassa red wine and Condrio white wine? Indeed. So we'll, we'll go for those as your two, because I do have to keep you to two, I'm afraid, in this dream scenario. But a Cornassa and a Condrio sound very, very nice. Well, before we end part one, we head over to Robin Alder, who's going to set this week's Moon Underwater pub quiz. Okay, everybody, pens out, eyes down, it's time for the quiz. He played for Zimbabwe, but he was born in South Africa. I know Alaska is bigger, that wasn't the question. Put your phone away. Right, Michael Jackson's Funky Monkey had been deducted five points. Thank you, John. Yes, this week's pub quiz um as ever i'm going to read three questions and then we'll give our moon underwater regulars and guests an opportunity to ruminate and then in part two we'll go through the answers and see how well we all did so this week the quiz is about identifying the famous chef from a quotation that i will give you so i'm going to read out a quote which could be from a book or a tv show and you have to tell me which chef said it do you think I need to do, should I try doing impressions as well, or just kind of keep it fairly... It's always welcome to have, have a, a quiz master who's willing to go the extra yard. Okay. But... Has it got an expletive in it? No, there are no expletives. So no Ramsey. Uh... <laughs> but Oliver, don't feel you need to know straight away, because we'll do the answers after the break. So don't feel the pressure's on too much. Yeah, there's no, no pressure, no pressure. So quotation one. There are people who claim to be instinctive cooks who never follow recipes or weigh anything at all. All I can say is they're not very fussy about what they eat. For me, cooking is an exact art and not some casual game. So that's the first. That's not a very good impression. That's a terrible impression, actually. I was going to um, say, is that an impression? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just sounds like me. So yeah, but she's based. Oh, I've given a clue. 
For me, cooking is an exact art and not some casual game. Question two, quotation two. Now you mustn't be frightened of mayonnaise. <laughs> Sounds quite similar to the first impression. <laughs> now you mustn't be frightened of mayonnaise. Okay, question three, quotation three. I can only think of one or two things that are sexier in the mouth than crisp, flaky pastry and hot, flowing cheese. And one of those is an oyster. <laughs> it's very rude. Uh, so that was three. Sexy things in the mouth. Two was mayonnaise. And one was about cooking being an exact art and not a casual game. So there we go. <laughs> well... On those culinary tenterhooks, we will leave you folks uh, before. You can take a little break in between the episodes to recharge your glass, pop to the loo, or get your favourite snack. We'll rejoin Oliver Payton very soon. Thousands of people listen to The Moon Underwater every week and we can help deliver your brand message to targeted audiences. So if you're to be part of The Moon Underwater and connect with engaged audio listeners, get in touch. Just email sales at audioalways.com and find out more about how podcast advertising and sponsorship could work for you. That's sales at audioalways.com.